G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for unsafe conversations. This is your refuge from the black and white world of right-wing blowhards and left-wing complainers. This is the place beyond the echo chamber of your social media feed and the partisan mainstream press. It's a place without good guys and bad guys where the only thing that's banned is taking offence at a true statement. Uh, and I suppose black and white worldviews as well are not welcome here. There are no taboos, there are only good arguments and bad arguments. I'm here to sniff them out. Change doesn't happen in an echo chamber, friends. Welcome to Uncomfortable Conversations. Today on the show, have you ever taken a mind-altering substance, especially an illicit one? Dr. Carl Hart has, does, uh, advocates for the responsible use of uh, mind-altering illicit drugs, including heroin and other such boogeyman compounds. I don't say that entirely uh, satirically or snarkily, I have been in close contact with people, friends, colleagues, interview subjects whose lives have been deranged and ruined by drug use. And so this was a difficult and sort of interesting conversation to have and a difficult and interesting mind to probe. Carl is a pro- professor at Columbia University. Uh, he's one of the first uh, tenured African-American professors of sciences at Columbia. Uh, He's a psychologist and neuroscientist, and he's renowned, uh, notorious, some might say, for his research on drug abuse and drug addiction. And he's a a strong and vocal advocate for decriminalizing recreational drugs, for believing that drug use isn't necessarily bad, and for essentially coming out of the closet as drug users. He has, he does, he wants other people to as well. He thinks that we would all have a much more healthy relationship to the way that we understand drug use in our society if it wasn't so cloaked in secrecy and sometimes shame. I don't agree with everything that Carl says, but gee, it's lovely to have conversations with someone who just totally doesn't give, I mean, he gives zero Fs, so to speak, about what other people think and about what other people's assumptions about him and his habits are. His most recent book is called Drug Use for Grown-Ups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. The New York Times Book Review called it powerful and timely, saying when it comes to the legacy of this country's war on drugs, we should all share Carl Hart's outrage. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Carl Hart. Sorry about that. I uh, forced liquid. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, man. How did you do it? Uh, I'm getting old. I was working out. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's embarrassing, actually, you know. My, I had to drop weights on me, and my wife had to come rescue me. Oh, <laughs> oh no. I know. I know. Just between you and me, you know. Just stuck there with your hand under a weight. Yeah. Ugh. My uh, my mom actually just had a fall. It's been pouring with rain across the east coast of Australia. There are huge floods, and uh, she had the great idea of going outside 
and walking to the chemist by herself and uh yeah fell over and like fractured her shoulder so it's, it's happening all over the place yeah yeah man i'm sorry to hear that i hope she's okay <clears throat> she's fine but uh, my dad's getting alzheimer's so she already has like a, i mean he's he's fine he's like you know he's he's at the early stages so he's sort of still st- it's still you know he still knows what's going on but it <laughs> makes life difficult for her where she already has to take care of him all the time now she has to do yeah. it one-handed for six weeks um i'm interested in, to begin with in what the past couple of years have been like for you what's the pandemic been like where have you been Oh, the past couple of years, what has that been like? Wow. Um, it's been a lot more traumatic than I thought it would be. Um, it's been hell because I uh, the book came out in 21, January 21. And before the book came out, um, I thought I'd be touring and doing these sort of things because I, I really like being in front of audiences. But then we all had this pandemic and so i had to uh, uh, basically uh, be sequestered without seeing people um and then on top of that having relatives die people close to you die oh no uh, particularly in the earlier stages of the pandemic and um so uh, it's been hard just missing human contact and um, disrupting everybody's routine was disrupted of course and my routine had been like really physical activity like working out and those kind of things but in a gym and of course couldn't do that during much of the pandemic and so Mm. uh, that's that's what I've used for my mental health like working out and then when you don't have that uh, it just becomes difficult but I recognize a lot of people had a lot worse than me because um, I still had a job at least. And so um, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Mm. Otherwise uh, um, um, it's been, you know, painful. Were you able to keep teaching? Uh, I was on sabbatical for until um, uh, this past fall. So it was 21 fall uh which was nice um uh, and i went back into teaching september 21 and i was in person and and so that made life better uh, just i mean i i guess sabbatical is always nice but there are nicer times to have a sabbatical than when the world is locked down during a pandemic exactly exactly, exactly. <laughs> i had a friend who had a, who did a sabbatical and came to australia for a year like uh you couldn't couldn't be doing that in uh, 2020 2021 Exactly. Uh, but um, it's nice to be back in person with students, at least. But yeah, even though we, we're still wearing masks in the classroom. So you tell I tell a joke and I'm already not funny. And then so <laughs> the, it, it just falls flat. And then there's... By the way, that was a joke, kids. That was a, that was a joke. Exactly. Please, please Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, should I be able to take heroin, uh, Carl? Um, I, I don't know. What What's your skill sets? What What, what is your What is your knowledge? You, you know, it's like somebody saying, "Should I be able to have sex?" I don't. I don't know. Should you? Uh, uh. <laughs> well, in general, we don't prohibit sex, regardless of how dumb you are. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. You mean should it be avail? Should it be uh, available? Certainly, uh, should be available uh, to people who who want to use it and know and and hopefully they um, know how to do it uh, safely. 
Hmm. What does that mean? Know how to do it safely. Uh, just like uh, when somebody drives an automobile, you know, it's uh, driving automobiles are available to us, but uh, we want to make sure that they know how to do it safely, such that they don't hurt themselves or hurt someone else. Is there a way of doing heroin safely? I mean, obviously, there's a way of having heroin and not dying of it in the moment. But is there a way of doing it in a way that doesn't uh, doesn't lead to come, come lead on, you onto not, onto a trajectory of? Uh, you know, of course there is. I mean, we of harm. Uh, of course there is. I mean, we could think about. I mean, uh, there are many people in our world who use heroin in a way that enhances their their life. Uh, um, and they enjoy themselves. Uh, but the problem is that we've told this narrow story about a drug like heroin. like, And that narrow story is that anyone who uses heroin has to do it every day, and the drug hooks you, and eventually it leads down this path to, to this path of destruction. That's the simple story we've told everyone. Now, that story is nonsense. Uh, it certainly happens to some people, but that's a minority of people. Um, the most, most of the people use heroin like they do anything else, like they may do on a vacation or what have you. You do you engage in activities on your vacation that you may not do every day in your life because um, you need time to recover. You need, um, or you don't want to overdo it for a variety of reasons. That's how most people do heroin, but that's not the story that we tell. How do they take it? Can you paint us a picture of the sort of archetypal person who you're talking about? Because I've never done heroin, even though I've, uh, you know, I've experimented with other illicit substances. And the, I think there's a, the reason I, I start with heroin right out of the gate is just because I do think that there's a, a perception that just as, you know, if you make a habit of, uh, of borrowing cigarettes from friends at a party and having the occasional cigarette, there is a quite likely trajectory on which you end up being a smoker. There is a perception that if you make a habit of consuming heroin occasionally, there's a trajectory on which you're quite likely to end up in a really bad place. So who are these people who are not? Wait, um, so um, just uh, I think that perception is, is false, uh, one. So if we think about people, like you and I are talking and we had to coordinate our schedules in order to make this thing happen. Um, and so I have a lot of things in my life like that where I have to like coordinate and schedule and um, that means that I have to inhibit other activities in order to meet this schedule or this obligation. Now, people who do this routinely in their life, now, if you add heroin to the mix or anything else, they'll just schedule time to um, include it just like any other activity. That's the normal trajectory of a heroin user, an alcohol user, a cocaine user, an MDMA user, any user. So that's so we want to start with reality first. Too often these conversation um, starts and deals exclusively in mythology that's been presented in film, in popular culture, in popular media. Uh, but that's not reality. And I'm 55 years old now, and I really am tired of dealing with these sort of mythologies and fantasies that have no grounds in or limited grounds or uh, in, in evidence or, or in limited foundations in reality. 
Is there a difference between the addictiveness of different substances, though? Because I completely take your point about, like, the average user. Let's take an easy case example, like a psychedelic, where, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, they're not just not addictive; they're sort of anti-addictive. That, like, you give a yeah, you, know, you give wrong. a you give a rat. You're yes, you're wrong. Am I wrong? Yes. Okay. You're wrong. So, let, let's start with that then. So there are. So I mean, I'll just articulate where I was sort of going with that, which is, I can certainly imagine that people who like to take magic mushrooms occasionally will take them occasionally, but there is no, there is no subsequent physiological draw that is drawing them back to them in a habit forming way that the, the way that they would be towards nicotine or the way that they would be towards opioids. Is that wrong? Okay, first thing I like to do, man, make sure everybody reads my book, Drug Use for Grownups, because I'm tired of having these conversations. <laughs> I'm really yeah, but this tired. This is a good way to reach people who haven't read the book. Yeah, no, I know, I know, but please understand, I'm 55. I've been studying drugs for 30 years, and I'm trying to live like an adult and enjoy my life. And I don't, it's like saying, um, you're a college professor, but we need you to teach children how to add. We need you to teach uh, two plus two. Uh, that's it's maddening. So please understand that th these low level conversations they they wear on my soul. And well, they, we appreciate you taking time to yeah, rehash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you just need to understand that I'm a person, and 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 people forget that sometimes. All right. So let's think about this sort of physically addictive nonsense that people talk about. Think about anybody who takes an antidepressant uh, every day for their mental health and it works and and they're able to live their life um, in, a, in a manner that, um, that satisfies them. Now, if that person abruptly discontinues their antidepressant use that they've been doing for several months or so, they will experience a physical withdrawal. And that, uh, you know, is an indication of physical dependence. But that doesn't worry us or concern us. That's just typical when you take a substance uh, every day for months and you will, without titrating down, without slowly taking down the amount of drug that you're taking. Um, but that's a normal sort of physiological response. But that's not indicative of addiction. Addiction is defined medically by this thing where you have psychosocial disruptions, where the people, the person is not meeting their obligations like work or family obligations or other obligations that are important to them. And the person is distressed by not meeting these obligations. That's addiction. Um, you might have some uh, withdrawal, but that's not a requirement. You might have some tolerance, but that's not a requirement. The main thing is the disruptions and you're distressed by the disruption. That's addiction. Um, so if we start there and we think about like, people, the sacred cow, now the psychedelics, we think about psychedelics. Uh, certainly people can experience addiction with psychedelics, but the vast majority of people never do. Uh, the same is true with the vast majority of people who take something like amphetamine or even cocaine or those drugs, or even heroin. The vast majority of people who do these drugs don't become addicted, but there are some who do become addicted. And we can talk about the minority who become addicted if we like, but the point is, is that if the vast majority of people don't become addicted, then you can't blame the drug for addiction. You have to look elsewhere. 
So let's talk about, let's talk, instead of calling it addiction then, let's just clarify, and then we can move on to the legal components of this, which may be more interesting to you than rehashing uh, common misconceptions about addiction and dependency. Uh, let's just talk about the the waning effect of drugs, because there's a phenomenon that people will be familiar with that I've reported on a lot when I've spoken to uh, like ex-meth addicts uh, that I've experienced in my own life with people close to me who've been alcoholics uh, or smokers. There's this phenomenon of like the first cigarette gives you a big head rush. So, you know, the subsequent ones you kind of want because it gives you this little high feeling. But gradually that high feeling gets replaced by a just sort of vague itchiness about wanting another cigarette and you're not entirely sure why. And that is something that I've seen mapped onto friends who've gone, who've, who've become compulsive uh, users of meth or, or ice, where it starts out feeling really, really great. But the hundredth time that they're doing it, they're not so much doing it because it feels great. They're sort of doing it, but they're not entirely sure why, but they kind of feel the need to do it. And it's obvious from the outside that this is some sort of a compulsion that's no longer giving them the reward that they originally got from the, the high. What, what's going on there? You don't have to call it addiction, but what is it? Well, I mean, there certainly is certainly true that people can experience. I mean, they uh, experience this thing we call tolerance, where um, you will take uh, you need more of the drug um, than you initially had taken in order to experience the sort of desired effect, whatever that might be. That's just tolerance, and that's a normal pharmacological response uh, if that's what they mean that that certainly happens uh, that certainly can happen with repeated use you get tolerance and so many people who are experienced uh, at using any drug including alcohol you just simply um, take drug holidays you take breaks I mean most people do they don't take drugs on a daily basis uh, most people you don't drink alcohol on a daily basis although some do, but most don't. And um, but if you do, uh, it's a real simple thing to deal with. Just take drug holidays. Mm. Why have we gotten to a situation then where some drugs like the antidepressants you were just talking about, are not only legal, but advertised and uh, profitable and others are, you know, so illegal that you can lose your whole life and be locked in a cage for the rest of your life by for selling them? Uh, well, in the U.S., uh, we know, like our drug policy, the first national drug policy happened in 1914. And the motivation for that policy and subsequent policies has always been um, uh, because the drug use had been associated with an undesired group or undesired uh, groups. And so um, uh, that's the major motivation for our drug uh, prohibitions in the United States, uh, not pharmacology, but because the drug was associated with these undesired groups. For example, uh, in 1914, when we banned opioid drugs and we banned cocaine, we did so because there were these stories about um, uh, Chinese Americans, Chinese who had come over to the U.S. to help build the railroads, and they brought with them the habit of smoking opium. And uh, there were a number of American business people who were jealous about the opioid dens uh, that were being run by the Chinese Americans. And so there were lies being spread about how these Chinese 
uh, were uh, corrupting good white women. And then there were uh, about the same time there were lies about how black American men were engaging in heinous crimes when they took cocaine, like raping white women. Uh, and all of these kind of stories uh, contributed to uh, the United States banning those drugs at the federal level. And subsequent drug uh, laws um, um, have uh, a tinge of the same sort of uh, spirit when, uh, when, um, uh, for the reasons for banning these drugs. When you say it has nothing to do with pharmacology, perhaps it didn't originally, but what is the rationale that authorities use now for recategorizing new drugs when they say, all right, well, you know, here's, a, here's some new compound or some new substance or maybe something that we haven't seen proliferate in our society before, like ayahuasca, which is becoming increasingly popular. Uh, therefore, we're going to try to slot it into one of these, I suppose they think of them as categories of harm uh, in order to, to meet the punishment to the, uh, the, the harm of the drug. What's going on there? Well, so uh, ayahuasca is not new, um, and the active ingredient certainly has been around forever, DMT, and in the U.S. Yeah, sorry, just as a phenomenon in, in Western societies where a whole bunch of Brooklyn hipsters get together overnight and, yeah. and do it. Yeah, so it's uh, been banned in the United States for a number of years, but um, um, the tea these days, people are... Um, um, turning a blind eye to some of these psychedelics in many of the states in the U.S. Um, because, uh, in part, uh, the people who are writing about psychedelics are um, uh, opinion makers, uh, and they like psychedelics. And so the uh, reputation of psychedelics are being rehabilitated in the United States, in large part because of the, the opinion makers are uh, enjoying uh, a select group of psychedelic drugs, um, ayahuasca being one of them, psilocybin being another. Uh, and then you go to like various cities where they have selectively decriminalized um, uh, some of these uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, in large part because of the people who uh, have um, uh, influence in the culture um, like that class of drug, and they have set they have separated their class of drug from all other drugs to do this kind of thing we call exceptionalism. How do you define exceptionalism? Well, when you think your drug is somehow unique and special, compare with other drugs. I mean, let's just take psychedelics for example. I like. Like people have uh, now classified MDMA as a psychedelic. MDMA, it's an amphetamine. Uh, you make MDMA by basically um, uh, modifying the methamphetamine chemical structure. It looks uh, almost identical to methamphetamine, and it has a lot of overlapping effects uh, with methamphetamine. Uh, but we don't think of uh, MDMA as an amphetamine because um, many of the opinion makers like the, the effects of MDMA. So you uh, move your drug out of that category and call it a psychedelic. Uh, <laughs> we, we think of something like ketamine. Ketamine, they call a, a psychedelic, but ketamine is made by modifying the PCP structure and they produce nearly identical effects, except PCP's effects last a little longer. Um, but no one thinks of PCP as a psychedelic and no one defends PCP, but they defend ketamine. And so these, it shows that these sort of categorizations or classifications 
are arbitrary and at some level and um, dependent upon who has the influence in our society. Carl, you mentioned earlier that there's the, the sort of cliche that we have in the public consciousness that's pushed by the the media and pop culture of the kind of drug crazed zombie, the person who's fallen off the the cliff. That that being an inevitable end to the you know the the drug user's life. What, what in your experience? I, I want to because you've had a lot of experience working with. Uh, drug users, and in at Columbia, you've actually done experiments with drug users. Are you able to actually administer drugs to them and see how they respond? Yeah, there are a number of people um, around the U.S. at least, and also in some other countries where uh, we give these drugs from heroin to MDMA to cocaine, whether it's smokable cocaine, um, cannabis, methamphetamine, a wide range of drugs. We give these drugs uh, in order to better understand uh, the conditions under which uh, you're most likely to see positive effects versus negative effects, uh, and also um, to help us better understand. So if people get in trouble with drugs, how to, be- how to best treat them. So all of this, of course, goes, this information goes into the scientific literature. Uh, but the point is, is that on a daily basis, we give these drugs in some of our most prestigious institutions. Yet we have these narratives that these drugs are so dangerous, you can't take one hit or you'll become addicted, you know, and and people just ignore that fact that we give these drugs on a routine basis in these institutions. You advertised for drug users to come into the lab and they knew that they were going to be able to get drugs. And did you do an experiment? I read somewhere that the, the, the experiment involved offering them you know, small amounts of money versus the drugs, and a surprisingly large number of them took the money, which indicated to you that they're not slaves to the drug? Yeah, yeah. the study that you just described was uh, one of my earlier studies with uh, crack cocaine. For example, um, we, we were trying to see whether or not um, taking crack cocaine um, was similar to any other behavior, you know, like, so if you have... Uh, an alternative to taking crack cocaine that's competitive. You, would it shift the behavior away from taking the drug to taking to, to this alternative? And the alternative in this case was money. We, you know, you give a range of monetary amounts and you can see where it shifts. Uh, something as little as five dollars. Uh, when you present people with a choice between a hit of crack and something as little as five dollars, they'll take drug and money on about the same number of occasions. But when you increase the amount to something like $20, they take the money on nearly every occasion. It just, it tells you that people who take drugs, even if it's crack cocaine or methamphetamine, uh, they um, they can and do behave rationally. Uh, well, as rationally as anyone else. And is there a is there a way in which the narrative about the, the drug slave, the person who's crazed by their addiction plays into uh, a neat kind of story about essentially police being good guys, authorities being good guys, uh, the privileged being good guys, especially when it comes to race. You, you know, there's all kinds of stories when, you know, if, a, if an African-American dies at the hands of police, then frequently the narrative afterwards will be that they were on drugs or that they were like they were exhibiting erratic behavior. Isn't there even um, some class of 
psychiatric condition that doesn't exist that the police put on forms. I can't, I'm blanking on what that is. Do you know what I'm talking about where they say the, the subject was in a state of something or other? that Excited delirium. Excited delirium. That's the one. He was yeah. in an excited delirium, meaning that like, you know, it was impossible to control. So of course we had to kneel on his neck or shoot him or something. Uh, and that, that, that psychiatrists are like, I'm, I'm not actually sure that that's a thing. Yeah, it, it, it's not a thing. It's it's from, I don't know, maybe 60, 70 years ago. It used to be a term that was used in psychiatry, but it's not used anymore. And and it's not well defined. Uh, and uh, But um, somehow the police education, uh, it, it hasn't gotten updated. And it just goes to show uh, how outdated uh, police training is when it comes to these issues. But uh, you were raising really important issues. Uh, one of those issues is that the thing that people have to realize, certainly as it relates to drug enforcement in the United States, commonly known as the war on drugs, is that the war on drugs is um, it's a jobs program. And the jobs program, uh, there are a number of people and a number of occupations that have benefited. And police uh, certainly have benefited financially. They get their budgets increased because of this sort of war on drugs. Uh, prison authorities benefit. People who do drug urine testing, they benefit. Uh, there are even people, people who write movies, they benefit because you just say something, somebody's a drug dealer, and then you don't have to develop uh, that character. Um, um, <laughs> a, a number of television programs benefit because you just simply say that the person is addicted to heroin. You don't have to know anything else about the person. You don't have to to, to, to develop that character. Uh, you say the person's a drug dealer, and then immediately that means the person's a bad person. You don't have to say any more. All of these people benefit from this mythology and so that's so so the war on drugs is this big jobs program um and so if we change how we're dealing with drugs in a society we have to see um the impact that it'll have on police budgets and these other people's budgets and 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 those people they certainly know the impact that it will have so they fight to keep this narrative uh People in the media fight to keep this simple narrative because you can get your stories published in prestigious places by simply focusing on someone who is addicted. And even though it's not representative of the users, can you imagine if um, if you brought in a story about someone who uh, was addicted to alcohol to one of the more prestigious sort of I don't know, daily publications, and um, uh, they tell you, yeah, not interesting. But if you brought a story to them about someone who is addicted to heroin, that's interesting, um, uh, even though it's not representative. Uh, and so the, this whole sort of the, our views about drugs, they, it's sort of such an important function in our society. And that's why people don't want to give up this mythology. Do you know people who have absolutely no attraction to mind-altering substances at all? I'm sure there are those people in life. And um, I can think about particularly younger people who um, they, uh, when you say mind-altering substances, I'm thinking about caffeine, I'm thinking about MDMA, I'm thinking about cocaine, I'm thinking about all substances that are uh, psychoactive. Um, yeah, there are people who say, I just simply want to make sure 
that I watch everything that go into my body because I am um, a super athlete, for example, and I mm. don't. I, and if I get if there's something in my body, I might be disqualified. And so I, I understand that. I mean, there there are there is the super athlete component, but I'm I'm interested in people who. I don't know, just sort of don't like the feeling of their consciousness being altered in any in any way. I have two friends I can think of who don't drink. They've tried drinking and they don't like it. They've tried coffee and they don't like it. Uh, I don't think they've ever tried anything harder than alcohol, but they're just like, I don't want to lose control. I don't want to feel like my consciousness is being tweaked. I just like sitting in the the, the consciousness mode that I have. And then I know other friends who are just hungry, craving for any different psychoactive experience that they can find, who are drawn, uh, you know, almost pathologically to finding different doors of perception that they can explore. And as you say, most of these people do it in healthy ways in my experience. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have any knock-on effects that are deleterious to the rest of their, their lives. But it does seem like there's something in them that is seeking either an escape or an adventure that puts them in a very different like personality type in my mind than the other people. And I wonder if you have insights about what those two, two differences are. Yeah. So like the people who just don't have any interest in uh, being psychoactively altered. Um, yeah. I mean, I was one of those people uh, not long ago, you know, um, really? because of this issue of uh, my sort of, desire and need to feel like I was always in control. I couldn't, I couldn't lose control. Um, I was quite uptight uh, and I had a lot of things to try to accomplish. And then, and, um, and I didn't know any better in that. Uh, I didn't know the potential benefits of altering my consciousness and um, um, the potential benefits in terms of being a better person, uh, uh, being a more empathetic person. I, I didn't realize all of those potential benefits. And so, yeah, most of my life I lived as the friends who you described, um, uh, wanting to always be in control. Yeah. Yep. I, I, so I, I get it. I understand that. And that's uh, completely um, their prerogative. And I think, um, and I support them in their, 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 uh, in their quest. Um, <laughs> And Carl, when you say that you used to be quite uptight, how did you get out of being uptight? Um, I, as you get older, you know, I'm 55 now, and then you start to like, and then you start to really think about what life is about, and particularly when you have less of it to live. Uh, and then you think about the various restrictions that you placed on your behavior. Um, and, uh, I try and think, I, I thought about the rationale for those restrictions and the ones that didn't make much sense. Um, I, I changed it. That's all just constant introspection, constant checking in on who I am as a person and constantly checking in on my, the, the impact of my behavior on other people. That's, that's all I, I that, and it, it's, it was, it's always a great sort of exercise uh, because I continue to grow as a result. Hmm. And when did you start doing drugs? Um, you know, like most people, I guess um, I, I did a little cannabis, try cocaine and, in my uh, you know teen years, little cannabis, and then early twenty, try cocaine, and then 
for the next 20, 25 years, uh, almost really nothing besides like a, a hit of cocaine at a wedding reception or something or a hit of cannabis at some special occasion. That's about it for like 25 about 25 years or so. And then in my 40s, um, that's when, you know, I had accomplished a lot of things and had gotten really good at um, uh, tempering my behavior or uh, really good at meeting obligations and that sort of thing. So I really developed a lot of skills, a lot of, uh, so I was prepared. So I felt prepared to do um anything basically and and so uh the more i studied drugs the more i learned about drugs the care more carefully i looked at our research participants and saw that after they took something like mdma you know they were really having a really good time and <laughs> and um and then i wondered like damn why the hell doesn't don't i know what that feels like and then uh, uh after learning what it like really felt like it's like well why was I waiting all these years to try this? Hmm. And then, so do you use heroin now? Uh, that's like saying, do you have sex now? I mean, <laughs> I, no, it's uh, not, Carl, because some, because almost nobody doesn't have sex. Lots uh, of people don't use heroin. No, so well, okay. It's more like saying, uh, do you do doggy style now? You know, so it's, it's like that's uh, it, it would be like a sexual position. You know, it's a uh, but the society don't recognize that. It's like, uh, of course, I alter my consciousness and then I use uh, whatever, uh, whatever the mood might strike me for that moment or my significant other for that moment. It's not, you know, it's a it's a deeply personal thing and it's um and it's a it's a thing that's not um, not difficult to understand, uh, but I know well, it, we we have made this thing seem so. Uh, it's it's kind of salacious how we talk about it in society. So that's why I'm giving you this response to kind of highlight the ridiculousness of this. No, I get it. I mean, one reason why it's maybe not salacious, but certainly kind of elusive and. Uh, interesting and intriguing to people like me is that just logistically, it's very difficult for me to even uh, consider experiencing something like heroin because I just don't even know how I would get it in a way that I would trust it. You know what I mean? So right, even, uh, if I, even if I wanted to make that decision, you clearly great. have access to compounds that I don't. So it's no, not, that's it's a not great, really that's on the a table. That's me. a great point. That's a good, no, that's a different question there. So like that, I mean, because I don't have access um, I may have access more than many people, but I I, I live in. Well, you work in a lab that has has heroin and cocaine. Oh, and you you know the lab, the drugs in the lab are tightly controlled. I would not ever think about ever taking a drug from the lab or anything like that. We have the tightest controls, and then that would be unethical. I would I wouldn't do that sort of thing. And also, you have to understand too that you know I wrote a book about. Uh, me being a drug user and asking people to get out of the closet. And so that means that I can never break uh, the law as it relates to drugs because then it uh, then it's like people would say, oh, you see, that person's an addict. He couldn't even control himself. So in the United States, our drug the enforcement of drug laws are so re repressive and so restrictive 
uh, I don't, I really don't have access in the United States like that. And so um, I, I actually try to live between the United States and Switzerland um, where they have uh, this thing called drug checking, where you can ch check the quality of your drugs by submitting small samples of it and getting a printout, a chemical, uh, a printout of the, the chemical uh, uh, components in the substance. So I, I really don't have that kind of access in the U.S. In the U.S., I don't feel free to really uh, do drugs because I don't want to ever uh, go afoul of the law and then uh, to have someone to say, oh, you see how irresponsible he is? He's addicted or he's whatever, mm -hmm. whatever negative um, uh, comments they would like to say. I, I, I don't want to give people that kind of uh, energy. I mean, they say that anyway, don't they? Yeah, some people uh, say that. I mean, with no evidence, but I don't really care about that. That that's ridiculous. I mean, when, um, but if I am arrested or something like that, and then they would have they then that would give them more sort of credence. But the, what they're saying when when they say that and they just say it that that's right. I don't I don't listen to those people. Yeah, so you need to be cautious. I mean, uh, and also I don't have the resources or the level of interest to be flying to Portugal or Switzerland or some jurisdiction where I can where I can partake of these of these things. It's not that high a priority for me. But uh, wait, I mean, hold, I on, hold on, hold on. Let's be clear. That's that's not the priority. I mean, that the, the two. To go to Switzerland, like I'm going to Switzerland to use drugs. No, I I go to Switzerland because it's uh, people leave you the hell alone, and uh, <laughs> they take care of their citizens, and um, it it makes me a better person. So let's let's be clear about that. Right, right. No, but I mean, if I were to go, I'm just thinking through the kind of uh, the decision tree, right, that I would face if I wanted to embark, or any any Australian or person in a Western. Uh, Western democracy that participates in the war on drugs. If we wanted to embark on an on a, on a an adventure or on a mind altering adventure, then the hurdles that are in our way to participate in it are are intense. Unless you're talking about basically the things that middle class uh, Australians like to do all the time, which is I guess cannabis and MDMA and cocaine, probably. But I mean, even that, even that outside of North America. Uh, cocaine is a very, very difficult thing to find in any kind of pure form. I don't know what people are putting up their noses when I see them do it at parties in Australia and much of Western Europe, but uh, by many accounts, it's uh, it's not very pure cocaine. Do you, do you want to have? Can I get your thoughts about kind of the the contamination, I suppose, of these compounds into things that may give people skewed ideas about what they do? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, but you, what you're saying about cocaine that makes sense in terms of not getting um, high quality cocaine in Australia. But I don't, I don't know what people will be cutting it with in a place like Australia. Uh, but that's the major concern that I have for for me using anything or anybody else. Uh, um, you have to make sure that you actually have what you think you have because the, the dangers surrounding drugs have to do mainly with the adulterants and not the drug that people are typically seeking. So, um, yeah, that's an important point. Mm. And with the expense, I guess. I mean, the fact that, th that drugs are illegal means that at least certain drugs, I mean, just staying on the, on the topic of cocaine in a place like Australia, I just cannot even understand how much money people must flush down the drain or up their nose rather on cocaine in Australia, where it's, as I understand it, like four or five times what it costs in the United States and probably one fifth the, the purity. 
And uh, I mean, if you're a, an incredibly high flying lawyer, then I suppose that's fine and you can do that recreationally. But I've seen many cases where people lose their income or they get a divorce or, you know, so all of a sudden they have big child subsidy payments or something like that. And they don't have the income that they used to have. And that then forces them either off cocaine and onto meth or onto something else. And then their lives do spiral out of control. I know that you'll say, well, that's not causal. Uh, you know, that could have happened to anyone from anything, but it certainly seems to be more common than not. Well, I'm glad you said that. I know you'll say, no, that's because <laughs> uh, you, you, you know, um, the concern that you raise, I'm, I'm not concerned about that. The vast majority of people who use drugs are middle to upper class people. I mean, uh, in the U.S. alone, you know, like this industry is a billion dollar industry, the illicit drug trade. And it couldn't be supported by poor people primarily. It's middle to upper class people. And so those people who are who are purchasing substances, they have the money. And the ones who, like you described, that person who um, somehow uh, is having problems and they're still doing drugs, I assure you those, per- those people had problems before their drug use. And um, so I don't pretend to act like I care about them. I'm worried about the price because I'm worried about these people losing their shirt. That's not where my interests are. I mean, that's uh, my interest is more that uh, the society has restricted access to these things. And as a result, um, they've made the activity a lot more dangerous because of the potential adulterants. And there's no quality control in terms of the substances. That's what I'm primarily concerned about. Mm. And there, there is, I should add, a big movement in in Australia. Uh, well, certainly in the state that I live in, in New South Wales, to introduce pill testing at you know festivals and big parties and Mardi Gras and things like that, where where you would be able to present your pill, which is which would usually be ecstasy or MDMA, uh, and have it tested to see whether or not it's going to harm you, and not to be in fear of uh, of you know of, of police when you do that. And then there are some people who say, well, that just encourages and condones drug use. And then there are other people who who say this is a way of encouraging drug users to actually interface with health professionals and make sure that they're they're doing things safely. So I, I don't even think I need to ask you about that because it's clear what side of that argument you would come down on. Um, your, yeah, your, but the, those yeah. people that say that this encourages drug use, just think about those people who said that about condom use. You know, it's the same thing. You hand out condoms when you're trying to prevent sexually transmitted infections. You're encouraging uh, sexual behavior in people who are not married. They said the same sort of thing. It's like saying you give people education, they might use it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you So, I mean, I completely take all of your criticisms about the caricatures that people make of drug use and drug addicts and addiction. Uh, but your critics also say that you sort of have a caricatured uh, Pollyanna vision of what the average drug user is is like. I, I don't know if you know Bertha Madras, who, who runs the Laboratory of Addiction Neurobiology at McLean Hospital in Massachusetts. And she says that you just ignore the adverse consequences. She writes, uh, the parents, the families, the spouses who've had to live and deal with opioid use disorder, traffic fatalities, workplace errors, absenteeism, workman's compensation, drug-fueled violence, school dropouts, drug-related crimes, and murders. Uh, She says you don't want to address those things, do you? Oh, uh, oh my God. Okay. I don't know where to start. Um, 
Um, so let's start with the workplace, for example. Um, in my sort of career, I've gotten multi-million dollar grants from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And a couple of those grants was called Drugs in the Workplace, and it focused on drug effects in the workplace. So uh, and my publications have, you know, we modeled the workplace where I um, um, check out the effects of drugs on work performance and those, those sort of things. So I have a I have dozens of publications focused on that alone. So um, Bertha's uh, comment there is just not informed by any evidence. And then her sort of comment about, uh, I don't know, what happens in communities. You know, I'm, I grew up in the place, you know, the hood, as they say in the U.S., uh, in a predominantly black community where drugs were blamed for many of the problems that are, that we experienced in our community, like High unemployment rates, um, maybe some crime and these kind of things. I, I started studying drugs because of all of these kind of concerns. And so Bertha has never lived in a place like I've lived. And, and my family still lives in that, that place, you know? And so, um, um, I, uh, her ignorance in that comment is only surpassed by those who actually, think that it has some credibility. Um, so I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I've, my first book, uh, high price focused on many of these issues, uh, on my current book, drug use for grownups deals with, um, uh, try to help people to under how to separate like what's really going on. Let's say with the opioid sort of concern in the United States, um, uh, when you look at people who die from a drug-related death, that's a, uh, you, you, we know that most people have multiple drugs in their system. And I've been advocating that we uh, actually uh, measure uh, the levels of these drugs in people's systems so we can determine what, uh, if any, what was the causal agent. And I've been advocating for uh, making sure we have uh, uh, some sort of quality control that people understand what they're taking so they don't take contaminants that potentially harm them and kill them. Uh, so uh, her comment is, is it's ignorant. Uh, that's all I can say. What do you make of the changes, Carl, that have happened in the past decade to the legalization of especially cannabis? But now I think in some states you've also got psilocybin and magic mushrooms being legalized. Is it in Oregon, uh, maybe? And I mean, I was living in California when medicinal cannabis uh, came in and then gradually evolved into recreational cannabis. Is this, do you see this as part of a, a broader trend that could engulf all drugs or is this uh, middle-class people playing around with their middle, their favorite middle-class things, but it'll never, uh, it'll never reach out of that bubble. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to predict because I, you know, I, I, I was in California, uh, living in California in 1996 when, um, they were, the first state along with Arizona to pass medical cannabis, you know, and I voted in that election. And um, so, uh, but I would have never predicted uh, the sort of legalization of recreational cannabis use in the United States. Now we have nearly 20 states that have 
legalize cannabis for adult use. I would have never predicted that. So as I think about Oregon, who recently, not only do they have legalized cannabis, but they recently decriminalized all drugs, uh, meaning that people uh, won't be arrested for possession of drugs or using uh, drugs. Um, Drugs sales still remain illegal, but just possession they won't be arrested for. Um, I would have never predicted these things. So it's hard for me to say um, where we're headed. Uh, I hope um, all I ask Americans to do is to think about the original promise of the country, and that is each of us were guaranteed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, as long as we don't prevent other people from enjoying those, these rights, uh, uh, we are guaranteed these birthrights. And so as part of that, people should be able to alter their consciousness as they see fit. And if we were really living according to our original promise, um, then these things would be available um, um, in uh, at uh, in the in um, um, ways that we knew the quality uh, and um, in ways that would enhance the, the safe use of these substances. And so I just ask people to just live up to the original promise. If you just think of that, this all becomes really simple. Mm. A final question about harm, Carl. I did an interview on my radio show with uh, a representative of the police force about there's a rule in Australia where in New South Wales where they can if they stop you at a random breath test and they do a drug test as well they can test for drugs that are in your system I think it's up to two weeks that are two weeks old now the point of the random drug test on the side of the road was presumably to give police the authority to prevent hazardous driving but I basically got the uh like the representative of the police force to admit that what they were actually doing was just stopping you for a random drug test and they didn't actually care like i was saying does it matter even whether or not the person's driving is impaired and he sort of confessed that no it it doesn't i mean it's the test is going to pick up even if you had certain compounds you know that you ingested 10 days ago it's still going to test positive and you're still going to be arrested for that which made me wonder whether or not harm is really what we're trying to oppose here, not just in random drug tests, but in the whole war on drugs, because new drugs will come along that have a very low harm profile, but if they have a high mind-altering profile, then there seems to be an opposition to them, which it strikes me is driven more by maybe a puritanical resistance to the experimentation with consciousness than with any clear-headed calculus about harm. And I wonder if you've noodled on where that comes from. Like, why are we objecting? I understand all the harm arguments. I understand people who are worried about their kids. I understand people who, you know, who don't want to who want to reduce addiction or want to reduce the burden on the health system, whatever all that is. I, I get all of that. But putting all of that aside, there still remains this kind of, I don't know, this accretion of concern that people have about the whole enterprise of altering our consciousness, like society will fall apart or something if people are allowed to tinker with their, with the way that their mind perceives the world. Do you see that? And where does that come from? 
Yeah, so that's why it's so important for you to um, actually deal with the other harms, like when the kids, the addiction. It's so important to um, discredit the, those or address those. Uh, so we think about kids. We worry about kids with drugs. That's absolutely true. Um, but the drugs we're talking about are for adults. And so like we worry about kids, particularly um, unmarried kids having sexual behavior or sexual intercourse, but we don't ban sexual intercourse for adults because we're worried about kids. Um, and But we do that with drugs and we allow that to happen with drugs. And so it's like, uh, if you do, if you allow that to happen with drugs, uh, you allow this sort of irrationality occurs. Why are you, why are you surprised? Then the cop tells you that, no, we're really just, uh, we want to know if you're using drugs because this is a puritanical, moralistic sort of pursuit. The argument about the kids already tell you that. The argument about addiction already tell you that because the vast majority of people who use alcohol, just like the vast majority of people who use heroin, are not addicted. But yet, we don't ban alcohol, but we're banning heroin, and we allow that to happen. And so if we allow that to happen with heroin, why are we surprised when the cop says, that what this is really about. That's what we are, that's what I've been trying to say. That's why all of these arguments, they fall apart. Um, and so if this is purely about, uh, we want to be able to tell you which drugs you can use uh, in terms of psychoactive uh, substances. We, we want to be able to tell you which ones you can use versus which ones you can't use. If that's what this is about, well, then let's say that's what that's is about. And most of us would say, wait a second, that's like telling me again which sexual positions I can use versus which ones I can't use. It's exactly the same thing. Hmm. Carl, I'm going to let you go and take care of your injured hand. I hope it gets better. I hope it gets better soon. And I want to encourage you to uh, stop thinking of 55 as being old. You're making me anxious. You say 55 like it's 80. It's uh, 55 years young, Carl. No, no, no. I, I, I know that. I, I enjoy, but I just can't do the same weightlifting that I used to do at 25. That's all. That's it. Thank you, mate. Good to talk to you. Take care. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.